0: You don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. We started this uh, short series uh, a couple weeks, or I guess about a month ago, talking about doubt. And we said that the thing that puts um, all of us on the same, p- same page is that at some point, all of us have doubt um, from time to time. Even if, even if you're a Christian, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, at some point along this journey, you've had some doubts about your faith, some doubts about God or the way that he operates, some doubts about something that you saw in the Bible, uh, doubts about something that you experienced in the church. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here because someone told you there'd be barbecue afterwards, and you're still, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're still trying to figure out where you land with all of this, you're still waiting to become a Christian because um, you've got some questions, I hope that this morning can be an encouragement to you because if your hesitation is that you think you've got to get all your questions answered and have it all figured out before you become a follower of Jesus uh, you know, and get rid of all your doubts, uh, then You need to know that even after you become a Christian, even a long ways down the road, there are going to be some things that you don't fully understand that don't always make sense, and you will experience doubt. And the question isn't, will you have doubt? The real issue is, what do you do with your doubt? So a few weeks ago in part one, we said that one thing to do with your doubts is you just bring them with you. You just carry them with you. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Jesus Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Christianity. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon the Bible, and it isn't a reason to quit on the church. Doubt is something you carry with you. When we talked about how to do that and what that looks like, I'm just going to carry my doubts with me as I follow Jesus. So doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. The issue is, what do you do with your doubt? Then in part two, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of John the Baptist, and we talked about the kinds of things uh, that cause us to doubt, or that fuel our doubt, and we looked at his story. Things like a new reality, where things around us don't look like they used to look. Sometimes it can be a good environment, sometimes, uh, you know, opportunity and options. Sometimes it's a bad situation. Uh, And we talked about the tendency for our doubts to really be self-centered, And we gave some practical suggestions for addressing our doubts, things like uh, looking back at God's faithfulness, looking out at what God is doing in the world, and looking ahead to what God has promised. So today we're going to continue uh, this conversation and continue to look at an answer to the question what about doubt. Before we go any further, watch this.
1: I waited and waited and waited for God at last. He looked, finally he listened, and he lift me out of the ditch. He pulled me from deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure that I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest god song. One, two, three, four.
0: I would imagine this morning, even in a room this size, that there are some of us who can relate to the song, to the words of the psalmist. These words are lifted directly out of Psalm 40. And the question is, what do we do with that kind of honesty? Uh, Does God really allow or does he really invite that kind of honesty with him? So this morning I would propose to you that until you are fully honest with God, you will not experience God fully. It's kind of the premise of my, my talk this morning. That until you are fully honest with God, you will not experience God fully. Until you're fully honest with Him, you just won't experience all of Him like He wants us to in this life. And I think we all know that we'll never really be able to fully experience God in this life until we see Him face to face. But there is this relationship that it seems that He longs to have with us. And just like any human relationship, uh, if you bring 10% of yourself to the relationship, uh, you will experience about 10% of the possibility or the potential of that relationship. If you bring half of yourself... um, You'll experience about half of a relationship. But if you bring all of you, then when you'll experience all of who God is and all that he wants you to experience. Being honest with God allows us to have a closer relationship with him. And if this is a relationship that he truly desires, and he does, it begins with you and I being honest. Honest with him about what you're dealing with. How about how you feel about it? About what you're thinking through? About what you're excited about? About what you're worried about? About what you're frustrated with? What you're wrestling with? And if you can find the courage to be honest with him, that's when you begin to experience the potential of the relationship that he wants us to have with him. But uh, realizing that potential really does begin with us. We tend to hang it on God And wonder why we haven't experienced all that He has to offer. We have a we have a role to play in this. Over the next few minutes, I would hope, um, really, to convince all of us uh, what really revolves around the word doubt. What about doubt? What about the questions that I have about God? What what about the questions I have about life, about myself, about what's going on, about what I see around me? Um, What am I supposed to do with all that? And what I think we're going to find is at the end of this, I want to offer you a way to handle your doubt. And you're like, finally, this is like part three. I was hoping we'd get there. We've been saying that Jesus invites us to carry our doubts with us as we follow him and uh, just bring them with you, and that's easier said than done, and I realize that. It's a little simplistic, So, and I realize it's really kind of an incomplete answer to your question. So we want to pursue this a little bit more this morning and see if we can get a little more practical when it comes to carrying our doubt, when it comes to handling our doubt. Um, and, and be ready, because even the way that I suggest by the time we're done this morning, uh, you're going to doubt it. <laughs> You're like, oh, really? That's what you came up with? That's your brilliant solution? Uh, when you hear what I have to say, you're probably going to say, well, that can't really be true. That is way too simple. That can't really work. That might work for you, Todd, with your preacher doubts, because those are big ones, I'm sure. But I don't think that'll work for me, because I got the big doubts. I got the big questions, the big hang-ups. You know, I'd, they would mess you up if you knew what they were. I really do believe that God offers us um, an invitation to bring our doubts uh, with us to bring our doubts as we follow Jesus, uh, to bring our doubts to Him. And, and then He actually gives us a way to, uh, to, to work through and to comfort and to process our doubt. And it may not answer the doubt, it may not dispel the doubt, but maybe even make sense of the doubts that you and I find swirling around us and in us sometimes. So, for our purposes this morning, I want to give us a, a, a definition of doubt, and I want to define it this way that doubt is when what I feel obstructs what I know. That's our definition for this morning, okay? When what I feel obstructs what I know. When what I feel, the emotion that has surfaced because of what I see, because of what I've been told, because of what I'm experiencing in life, because of what I see my loved ones experiencing in life, or whatever, when it gets in the way of what I know to be true. Have you? I'm just curious, have you experienced any doubt lately? Anybody? I would imagine at some point that you have, and in many of us, it's, it's recent. I would imagine that uh, in whatever area of life where you're struggling with some doubts, may, I don't know, maybe they're surfacing for the first time. Maybe they just keep resurfacing, whatever. But I'm sure that from your perspective, it's a significant thing. It's especially true when it comes to our relationship with God and in that realm where we relate to God. Now, if you're not a Christian. You've been coming to church lately because you're kind of interested in learning more about this whole deal, but the truth is you're not really sure where you stand at this point and what you believe about it. I hope that today will at least be helpful for you to help you see how, just kind of how I believe that God encourages us to handle our doubts. The answer that so many Christians give to people who have significant doubts is, it sounds like this. Well, just believe. Just ignore your doubt and just believe. It's kind of like when Paul says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. Like, thank you, Paul, that is so helpful. You know, it's like, yeah, because I, I was wondering how, and I'm glad that you just told me just to, do, to understand. You know, you've, you've probably done that with your kids, and you help them with their homework, right? Or maybe they're trying to help you with their homework. Like, just understand this. And the idea that the answer to doubt is just believe, get over it, and it's not helpful. And it's not that easy, and it's not that cut and dry. So what do you do when your doubts around who God is, not just his existence, because you're okay, like, you're, yeah, you're pretty convinced that God exists, but your doubts might revolve around his character. What is God like? What do you do when, when those are a significant obstacle between you and a relationship with him? I think it's important to articulate as specifically as possible what exactly your doubts are about. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves, and I think we need to be honest with just a few other people and honest with God. Because understand, this isn't just for people who don't consider themselves Christians. This isn't just for people who are hesitant to cross the line of faith and become a follower of Jesus because they get some big unanswered questions. This is for Christians. I'm talking to a room mostly of Christians. It's for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers. It's for us too. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe for you, maybe your question kind of sounds like this when you feel like... uh, like doubts are kind of swirling around. Maybe it's a. Is it, is it possible to know God even if I spend a large portion of my existence wondering if he even exists? Is it possible to know God if I keep questioning what is he really like? Can you identify with that at all? Is it even possible to have a relationship with God if I sit around and ponder whether he's even real? And if he's real, what exactly is he like? Here's a quote that I came across uh, this week when I was preparing, and I I found it very honest and freeing, honestly. You may have heard this, but it says, uh, here's the quote. Where is my faith? Even deep down there is nothing. Nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. It pains me without ceasing that I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me, I'm afraid to uncover them. Anybody have any idea who said this? Anybody? Mother Teresa. Someone that lived that kind of a selfless life, who lived a life that was all about bringing honor to God, you would think that, some deep level of confidence and conviction that she would live with, you know, and she did so much to help other people in the name of Jesus, and who gave, she just gave her life away on a regular basis that someone of her stature and her reputation that she would be plagued with doubt. Unfortunately, uh, whatever your unanswered questions are, or maybe your Unanswered questions aren't about the existence of God. Maybe it's more about, like I said, about God's character. Does he really care? Is he really paying attention? Is he aware of what's going on in my brain or what's going on around me in my circumstances? Uh, if, If he does care, if he is good, is he able to actually step in and help? What's the whole prayer thing all about anyway? So if he can help, why doesn't he? I don't know what your questions are or what your doubts revolve around. But this is true for all of us, that doubt can often feel like a barrier to your relationship with God. Doubt can feel like an obstruction to your relationship with God. And what I, uh, when I think about doubt, uh, this is how I've come to, come to think of it. And this illustration for me brings a little clarity, and I hope I can communicate it in a clear enough way that it brings clarity for you. Um, I'm sure you're familiar uh, with, with an eclipse. You know what an eclipse is, right? How many of you know what an eclipse is because you, you, you stayed in school through fourth grade? Okay. Uh, they, they occur regular. Interesting that not everybody put their hand up. I I'm going to give you a second to Google that. Just Google it real quick so you can kind of get on board with the rest of us. Um, Eclipses recur uh, regularly enough that they don't surprise us. They're actually quite predictable. Uh, And yet they're rare enough that we usually want to catch a glimpse of them, right? How many of you like to catch a glimpse of an eclipse anytime that you can? Yeah, that's cool, right? Um, Let me just give you an elementary explanation of, and if if it's not scientifically spot on, all you scientists, nerds, leave me alone. Let's, uh, so this, we're going to let this, uh, oops, sorry, I hit the wrong, I hit the wrong button, Stan, sorry, hope I'm not messing you up. This we're going to let represent, anybody want to guess? That we're going to let that represent the sun, and we're going to let the sun in this illustration represent God. Okay, and then uh, of course the other element in the eclipse would be over here, and it's going to be the Earth. I drew that freehand, and uh, we're going to let that <laughs> we're going to let that represent us. We have got another component, right? And it's what moon. the moon. We're going to put the moon right there. We're gonna let that represent our doubt. So here's how an eclipse works, right? As the earth orbits the sun, our moon also orbits the earth, right? If you're a flat earther, don't even talk to me. But um, (laughs) I, I was doing some research on this whole thing, just making sure my illustration was accurate, and I came across the stuff you find in that rabbit hole that is YouTube. And flat earthers. Hmm, interesting. But anyway, I digress. As the Earth orbits the Sun, our moon also orbits the Earth, right? And every once in a while, the moon lands right between us and the Sun. This is a solar eclipse. And in this position, even though the moon, and this is just so you know, not drawn to scale. Okay. The room is not big enough for you to actually see. I could have had a little dot over there. That could have been the sun, I suppose. And Anyway, uh, even though the, earth, uh, it, the sun is significantly back up, the moon is significantly smaller than the earth, and the earth is significantly smaller than the sun, because of the way perspective works, it's possible during a solar eclipse for the moon to block the light of the sun from the earth. How many of you ever intentionally experienced a solar eclipse? Okay. Some of you are like, you walk outside at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're like, what is happening? The end of days is here. And you're like, you had no idea because you weren't watching the news. Here's the thing, though. It never blocks the light from the entire Earth. It doesn't work that way. What it does is it casts a shadow on a specific place on the Earth. That's why we might experience a solar eclipse while our friends on the West Coast or another part of the globe are completely unaffected. A solar eclipse is quite narrow in its reach. The sun uh, is, is blocked from view, and we are sitting in the shadow of that. And the moon, when the moon comes between us and the sun, and blocks the light of the sun. In fact, we can't even see the sun anymore. How many of you think I'm making this whole thing up because you've never, never gone outside? Okay. Uh, like, I knew I should have turned my video games off at some point. The point is, the moon, in this illustration, functions like our doubt. Doubt can feel like an obstruction. It seems like we know what to think about God. We may even feel like we know everything there is to know about God, and we know God. We may think that we understand who he is and what he's like and how he operates, but sometimes our doubt comes between us and God, and we can't even see him because our doubt has gotten in the way. So what do we do when doubt obstructs our view of God? What do we do with the feelings that surface, the uncertainty, the anxiety, the angst, the anger that gets in the way of what we know to be true? What do we do? Before I answer that question, listen to this song.
2: The shadow proves the sunshine The shadow proves the sunshine
0: The good news, uh, the way I see it, is there's a book in the Bible uh, called Psalms. It's a huge book of songs or poetry written mostly by King David, many of them before he became king. And David was an expert when it came to knowing what to do with feelings. And this is good because doubt surfaces a lot of feelings in us and a lot of questions in us. And what we learn from the Psalms is that we can't and shouldn't just dismiss our feelings. We can't just push them aside and think that's going to take us any place good. They're very important. They are indicators. They're crucial. They should not be ignored. They should not be suppressed. In fact, in this church and in our gatherings here, you should never feel ashamed of your emotion in this place. You never need to apologize for having feelings and expressing them in this place with your church family, with people who love you, and people who can empathize with you, and with people who've been where you are, because our feelings are key to a relationship with God. But the cool thing about the Psalms is that David shows us that as important as our feelings are, as important as our emotional responses are, we shouldn't just bow to them either. We shouldn't just push them aside and dismiss them, but neither should we cave into them. And he gives us a way to look at our feelings, uh, a way to look at our doubt that I, I find to be very, very helpful. We're going to look at one psalm today and, uh, in its entirety. And let's turn to Psalm chapter 13. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, that's where we're going to be. If you have neither, we're going to have the words on the screen. And just to get a little technical, uh, it's not Psalms chapter 13. The book is Psalms, plural. It's a collection of Psalms or songs or poems. And unlike the other books of the Bible where translators created the divisions that we know as chapters and verses, for the most part, uh, the Psalms all stand alone. There are a few that that were divided by the translators. There are a few that were combined into one or two. But for the most part, when we say Psalm 13, these six verses stand alone as an individual uh, book of the Psalms uh, or as an individual poem or song as it was originally written. Uh, your Bible may show, uh, it may show divisions within the Psalms. Typically, there are five divisions in the Psalms. Most Bibles show that. Most scholars agree that Ezra, the Old Testament scribe and priest, that in his work to reestablish temple worship in, in the Jewish temple, uh, that he organized the Psalms into these five divisions. And each of these five sections of Psalms ends with a doxology or a song of praise. And the final verse of each concluding Psalm of each section includes the words, praise the Lord or amen. So anyway, that's just technical. The Psalms were written not merely as poems, but as songs for singing. And more than a third of the Psalms, you'll see the little heading in there who it's addressed to. A third of them are addressed to the director of music. Some Psalms exhort the worshiper to sing. Uh, some headings even tell you the musical instruments that should be played on these, uh, on these Psalms. It's kind of cool. Anyway. Psalm 13. David makes a radical uh, transition, and if you ever find yourself in the middle of stubborn or crippling doubt, I hope you find this helpful. Here's how Psalm 13 reads. David begins with this question. I mean, is this not an honest and direct question? We've already heard it asked in Song. Psalm 13, verse one. How long, Lord? Stop. God, how long? I mean, how long is this going to last? How long do I have to stay here? How long is this going to be like this? How long is this thing going to contaminate my life? How long is this going to stand in my way? How long are you going to hide from me? God, how long? How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Does it ever feel like God has forgotten you? You ever been there? David goes directly to God with those thoughts. He's like, how long, Lord? Are you going to forget me forever? How long are you going to, are you going to hide your face from me? We'll go back to that, that eclipse diagram. You know How long are you going to hide yourself from me? You know what's amazing about this? When you lose something, uh, you might tell someone, and you might say, yeah, I lost it. I'm, I'm looking for it. I've looked for it. I'm looking for it. I can't find it. But who gets the blame? I mean, it's on you. You're the one that lost it. But in this case, the blame is being fixed squarely on God. It's like, God, you know, I didn't lose you. You are hiding from me. God, you are making it seem like it's impossible to find you. And not only that, but this seems is like a persistent thing. This has gone on for a while. God, how long? Next verse, verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? My thoughts are swirling around and I'm wrestling with them because they're telling me things like God can't be trusted and God is gone and God isn't even aware and he's not present and he doesn't really care and he's not really that powerful, obviously, to think about it, is he even someone you want to have a relationship with? It's like a thousand pound weight of sorrow in my heart, God. How long is this going to go on? He continues. How long will my enemy triumph over me? (laughs) I don't know what your enemy is. It's more likely that your enemy is a what than a who, honestly. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe your enemy is depression. Maybe your enemy is sadness. Maybe your enemy is addiction. Maybe your enemy is unrealistic expectations. Maybe your enemy is hopelessness. Maybe your enemy is loneliness. Whatever it is. Everyone knows what it feels like for the enemy to gain control. We all know what it feels like when it looks like the enemy is one. And in case this isn't direct enough, David gets an extra direct in verse 3. He says, look on me and answer. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. He finally calls God his God. He starts off in verse 1 saying, how long, Lord? Hey, it's your fault. And Apparently after a long while, finally he says, look, would you hear me? Would you look at me? You're supposed to be the Lord my God. This little phrase, look on me. It, in our English application, it's like saying, Look at me. You ever say that to your kids? Look at me. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Or to your spouse, don't. This is, uh, this is, we won't go there. This is, this is kind of irreverent to say, God, look at me. Look at me, God. I'm trying to get your attention here. It's like I'm staring at the back of your head. Would you look at me? There's none of the expected piety in this. Think about this. You ever heard someone pray, and when they pray, they speak in a different voice? Like, you know, you're in a circle of people, maybe you're in a small group setting or something, and you're, you're talking about what you're going to pray about, and you're, gonna, you're having this conversation, everyone's just kind of talking, sharing their prayer needs or concerns or whatever, and someone says, well, I'll pray. And then it's like they turn into some character in a Shakespearean play, you know? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, if, you, if this is your only church experience, it's unlikely because we're not super traditional. Uh, but it's like, pardon me, great Lord Almighty, you know, and thy general authority, we're mindful of thy generosity, and thy power to squash it whatever thou dost desire to squash, you know. If thou wouldst bother God, would you mind taking the time, if it moves thee, to look at me? Hmm. Sorry. There's no bowing. There's no quiet church whisper or quiet sanctuary tone. There's no act of reverence. It's just, God, you are not doing what I expect you to do. Based on what I know of you, why are you acting the way you're acting? You're not keeping up your end of the bargain. And, And by the way, God, look at me when I'm talking to you. You've been gone. It seems like you've been doing this on purpose and messing with me, and it's just kind of hopeless, and apparently you aren't paying attention. Oh, and, and God, in case it, and as if it doesn't get you know any worse, uh, nothing's improving here. How long, Lord? And he says this, verse 3. Give light to my eyes. I'll sleep in death. Okay, now, <laughs> David's being a bit of a drama queen at this point, but in David's situation, if you would read his story... It's very possible that it really was life or death, okay? Read his story. It's pretty crazy. These songs that he wrote before he became king. Let me ask you this. When do you need light? He's like, give light to my eyes. When do we need light? We need light when it's darkest, right? So evidently the situation had gotten so dim, so dark. The outcome had gotten so hopeless that he's saying, God, if you don't give light to my eyes... If you don't bring some kind of hope to this, I'm going to die. It seems like a life or death situation. Maybe all the wrestling with doubt and all the persistent sorrow is robbing him of life. It's as if he's shaking his fist at God and saying, God, this is your problem. You you caused it. Now you've got to fix it. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. Verse 4. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now he's trying a different tactic. Pay attention, because you may need to go this route sometime. Because now he's threatening God. He's basically saying, God, everyone knows that I'm in this relationship with you. So yes, it'll hurt me if you don't come through. But God, if you don't come through, it's going to look bad on you. I mean, people are going to look at me, and then they're going to look at you and be like, yeah, that's what I thought. David's God can't be trusted. All this honesty in just four verses. What's amazing is that In the middle of this short psalm, he's completely disoriented, can't see straight, can't think straight, and he doesn't hold back and he brings all of it to God, and in the middle of it, somehow, he gets some clarity. And God doesn't remove the problem, but it does seem like God provides an answer to the question, and somehow his honesty leads to the kind of relationship that I know I want to have with God. Because honesty with God, even about our doubts it seems, honesty with God creates a, relationships, a relationship that's strong enough to bear the weight of doubt. Think about that. Honesty with God, even about your doubts, even about your questions, your lingering questions, create a relationship with God that's strong enough to bear even the greatest weight, even the weight of your doubt. That gives me some hope. You don't have to let your questions or your doubts be a barrier. They could actually be a bridge to a deeper relationship, a better relationship, a more intimate relationship, the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you and with me. And He says it's actually possible. We learn a lot from David. We learn that yelling works sometimes. That's good news. You yelled at God lately? It means that persistence works. And somehow in the middle of this, he changes his tone. I don't know exactly how this happened, but it's almost like he put his pen down or his iPad or whatever he was writing with and he went away and he went for a walk or, you know, something happened or he maybe went and sat out in a field somewhere and got some clarity because he comes back and there's a pivot that happens. And he goes from, God, what have you done for me lately? You ever ask that question? And somehow he shifts from that question to, God, what have you done for me ever? Very different question with a very different answer. Here's what it looks like, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. (laughs) Look at this. God, how long? How long, God? I'm going to die. My enemies are going to be victorious over me. Then he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. Trust is powerful. Trust is powerful enough to sustain us even when in the most hopeless situation. If I were to ask, uh, if you were to ask me what's the opposite of doubt, I would probably say certainty. Don't write that down. But the truth is, there are very few things in life that we will ever find certainty about. If you have the same opinion about everything that you've ever had an opinion about, and it's been 40 years, um, you're not being very honest. There'll be way more doubt in life than there is certainty. So I've come to believe that the opposite of doubt is actually trust. Choosing to trust in the unfailing love of God. In the original language, which I'm no scholar of, but I, like I said, I like to read people who've done the work for me. In Hebrew, the word that's translated unfailing love is actually just one word. It's the word hesed. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament. Over half of those are found in the Psalms. David loved this word, hesed. Hesed represents not just any kind of love. It's not the the kind of fleeting or passing love that we feel for ice cream or pizza or coffee or even for some sports team. It's not that kind of love. Hesed is the kind of love that is covenantal. It's a loyal love that God has for his people. And it's like David is trying to remind God, God, you're the God who has hesed for me, unfailing love. So why does David and why do we have reason to trust in this unfailing love? He tells us, he says, my heart rejoices in your salvation. He's like, I'm going to trust in your unfailing love and my heart is going to rejoice in your salvation. Salvation uh, for us might have a different meaning than it did for David. David, David had a hope of salvation because uh, where we have, a, we have an assurance of salvation, like he was looking forward to what God was going to do, what God had promised to do. We can look back on what God has done. And for us, salvation is found in one person, God himself in the flesh, Jesus. And faith and trust, it involves a certain set of beliefs and trust is an attitude of confidence, but at its core, trust is found in a person, in Jesus. He's the manifestation of God's unfailing love. And you can remind yourself in the middle of anything and everything that God, I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't understand why this is going on. I don't know why you seem to think this is a good idea for me. I don't know why you're letting this happen. Maybe you caused it. Certainly have no idea there. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything for me right now. But God, I know that you have sent your son Jesus. You sent him on my behalf as a sacrifice for my sin for the sake of a relationship with you. That's good news. That's worth holding on to in the midst of swirling doubt and confusing emotion. In the middle of every season, in the asking, how long, God, you can anchor yourself in the hope, in the certainty that God's unfailing love has been seen and proven and displayed on the cross. And so because of that hope, David ends this way, he says this in verse 6, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he's been good to me. <laughs> this is what David ends with. I didn't make this up. I, I don't even really get this. But he begins with doubt, and he ends with praise. And David was all about praise, and he was all about music, and he was all about singing. And I don't know if you like singing or not. In fact, It's kind of weird when you think about how much we sing in church. Like, it's not just, like, there are people performing like you're at a concert, but, like, where else in our culture do you get together with people that you know and people that you don't know and stare straight ahead and sing songs together? I mean, this is just, it's, a, it's a pretty funky thing that we are going on here, you know? I don't know if you're into it or not, but singing and music has a potential to be very powerful in our lives. And throughout the Psalms, over 100 times, David reminds himself, I'm going to sing of the Lord's goodness. I'm going to sing a new song to God. He breathes in God's unfailing love and he breathes out praise to God. It's a process that he goes through because praise in the middle of pain, it rekindles our courage. And if you'll bring the real you to the real God every single day, you can find that kind of courage to say, God, even if I don't feel like trusting and I I know that I can trust you. And I'm going to breathe in your unfailing love and I'm going to breathe out praise to you. So what are our options in the midst of swirling doubt? I want to give you a couple options. Number one, you can, just, you can just wait to be honest with God until you have your questions answered. That's an option that you have. You can do that. How long will you be waiting? I don't know. I'm going to guess a long time. Perhaps your whole life. Um, and I don't know... How or when you'll ever get your questions answered. But it's an option. There's another option that you and I could be honest with God with our unanswered questions. We can be honest with God even with our doubts. We can be honest with God about your doubts. You can take your doubts that you think are a barrier to a relationship with God and you can allow them to actually be a bridge to a more intimate, honest, authentic relationship with God. You can have a conversation with God that's all about honesty about your doubts because being honest about your doubt reveals to God what is true about you. Think about that. Being honest with God reveals to God what's true about you. God, this is what I'm struggling with. God, this makes no sense, but... this is, it's what I'm feeling right now. I don't get it. I don't see what, I don't know what else to do and I don't see why this is happening." Maybe you've got a dream that's unfulfilled. Maybe you had a, had a picture in mind and it's not working out. Maybe you had a relationship in mind and it's not right there. And you had a picture of family in mind and it's nowhere close. And maybe you had a career in mind and it's not working out. And maybe you had some financial goals and that's not happening. And maybe sickness has affected your dream, either your sickness or the illness of a loved one. And you can, you can, you can be honest about your doubts because it reveals something to God that's true about you. But as we learn from David, there's a flip side to this coin because he begins with this complete and utter honesty with God about his doubts and he turns it around and he ends with being honest in praise and being honest in praise because somehow praise reminds you what is true about God. See what happened there? Being honest to God about your doubts reveals to God what's true about you, but being honest in praise reminds you what's true about God. The truth of the matter is sometimes sometimes we can't see him. Would you give me that picture of the eclipse again, Stan, if you would, please? Sometimes we can't see him because we've allowed our doubt to stay right here. For those of you who are big fans of space and astronomy and celestial happenings, you know this is just one kind of eclipse, right? This is a solar eclipse. This is an eclipse that blocks our view of the sun. But there's another kind of eclipse. And if we just let the moon kind of take a journey as it orbits, come out to come over here, it's coming, here it comes. Watch this, magic. <laughs> That's when we experience a lunar eclipse. In this case, our doubt <laughs> moves over here behind us. Where now you can see the sun clearly. You can see God as He really is unobstructed. You can see truth clearly. And the doubt is behind you. You may never remove your doubt. But what you can do is you can move your doubt. Because praise doesn't remove our doubt, but praise can move our doubt. David's answer to doubt might throw you because his answer to doubt is to praise. And you might be thinking, uh-uh, I don't think so. I, I don't really like to sing that much anyway, and I'm not that good at it. It's not really about singing. It's about your heart finding a way and an expression to exclaim with your mouth what is true about God. That's what praise is. And when we praise, it focuses our attention on what we can see. The moon the sun just disappeared. Uh, I thought we was still there, but you're doing the right thing. Uh, when we praise... It focuses our attention on what we can see. Doubt is focusing on what we can't see. Doubt doubt focuses on what we think God isn't doing. But praise actually moves our doubt to the place where now we can see God clearly. That's what praise does. You always have that option. You don't have to wait for Sunday to come to church to have that opportunity to see what the band's going to play so you can praise. You can do that wherever you are and ought to. You always have that option. This is what's really cool. In a lunar eclipse, when the moon seems to be disappearing and then it appears to have disappeared, has it disappeared? You know the answer to this. Of course not. It's still there. Just, let's be clear on that. The moon is still there. You can't see it, but it's still there. Why? Because it's lined up with the earth and the earth to borrow a phrase from popular culture, is throwing shade on the moon. Remember, the source of the light is what? not, Not a trick question. The source of the light is the sun, not the earth, not the moon, the sun. Stay with me. Our praise throws shade on doubt. Your doubt may never go away. Because just about the time that you think you've got one question answered, if you're being honest, another one's going to take its place. Your doubt is just always orbiting around you. But if in the practice of your praise, you can declare what you know to be true about God, it will move your doubt to the place where you can see God clearly. And it'll move your doubt to its proper place, in the shadow, behind us. I hope that whatever you're in the middle of, if you're in a how-long-God kind of situation, I hope that God comes through for you exactly the way you want him to. But even if he doesn't, I'm telling you, it, it is possible for you to thrive in the middle of what you see as the worst of circumstances. But the only way to get there is if you will resolve yourself to say, God, I want to be a person who's going to praise you in the good and in the bad, no matter what. So I want for all of us to be the kind of people who can just pray what David prayed in verse 5. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just ask that through your Holy Spirit, you'd allow us to see more clearly than maybe we've ever seen before. pray that we'd come to you and be honest, that we bring our desires and our dreams and our doubts to you, as we really are. In the middle of whatever it is that we're going through or whatever is right around the corner, that we'd be the kind of people who would have the resilience to say, I'm gonna praise you, God, whether it's good or whether it's bad, because I know what's true of you. Heavenly Father, I know that as we do that as a church, we're going to hear stories of people's doubts moving to the proper place because of what you do in hearts when we praise you. Thank you for being the kind of Heavenly Father who invites us to bring our doubt, who invites our honesty, and who works in our praise. In Jesus' name. Listen to this song.
2: One down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I tried to win this war I confess My hands are weary I need your rest Mighty warrior King of the
3: fight